It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking triumphant Tottenham, disastrous debuts and victorious Villa. And we've got plenty more to come as well. We'll be talking about Brighton and Brentford and how they cope without their missing stars. Joining me for all of that is Tom Roddy, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. But even before all of that, we've got another special guest joining us all the way from Australia. Her passport's ready, her bags are packed and she's probably feeling a little bit glum. Molly Hudson... We're here with you now to talk about the Women's World Cup. England losing that final 1-0 to Spain. Been 24 hours now nearly for you to reflect on it. How, how are you feeling now, Mo? I think it's a strange feeling always when a major tournament comes to an end, when you're so far away from home. And obviously that's been magnified this time because England got all the way to the final. I think in a strange kind of way... The team had rode their luck throughout this tournament. We talked on this podcast about how they hadn't necessarily been playing the most beautiful, best football, but they'd found a way to win. And I think, uh, I'm not sure right now this is a consolation, but Spain were the better team. They deserved to win and they were technically superior and by far the best team that England have faced in the tournament. Uh, of course, England had their chances um, Lauren Hemp hit the bar and there were times that, that could have gone differently, those those big moments that you always look back on in, in such big games. But I think in some ways England reached as far as they possibly could when you consider all of the injuries and everything else that had happened in the build-up to this tournament. So in that sense, or, although it hurts now for these players, I think they'll look back and be very proud of what they've achieved. It's interesting you talk there reflectively, Mole, about Spain being the better team and kind of England riding their luck a little bit. I was speaking to Casey Stoney um, because you were busy with all the work yesterday for her column for today. And I, I was quite struck by how critical she was of England's performance. You can read her um, comment piece on the Times website now. But I found it interesting, I'm sure you did as well, her criticisms of Serena Wiegmann and some of those changes she made at halftime, not quite understanding why you would take off Rachel Daly and Alessia Russo, your two goal getters when you're a goal down in a World Cup final. Did you agree with that assessment, Molly? Yeah, I have to say when when I saw the stubs at half time, I initially thought this is good. She's made a change because so many managers in this tournament have waited too long to make those changes. And we, we kind of felt that with England too when the Lauren James red card happened. She should have seen it coming and sort of took her off before it actually materialised. I think in this case... It was perhaps the right move, but it was the wrong personnel. I think it, instead of taking perhaps Russo or Davy off, one of the players that come off should have been Ella Toon, who 
if we're really honest, has, has had a pretty poor tournament. She she scored that fantastic goal in the semi-final, but has been quite anonymous for the rest of it. And I think it, it made absolute sense to get Lauren James on the pitch. Chloe Kelly, again, is another fantastic uh, substitute. She's proved that time and time again. But I think it, it was a slightly strange decision to leave Ella Toon on as, as long as Serena did. But I also just think, again, it, it's those limitations of this team with the injuries and, and just the natural lack of depth, actually, in some positions, because... England haven't had a proper left back for the last two years. And that really come to bite them in this game because, uh, as Casey Stoney had, had actually said in her pre-match analysis, Spain are so good down the wings. They isolate you. They double up on you. And England's fullbacks just couldn't cope. And in the end, when Serena made that double change, England were reverting back to the back four, which had struggled against Haiti and Denmark. And you were asking them to perform in a World Cup final. So I think... In some ways, as soon as that change happened, I, I sort of knew the game had gone. But then Mary Epps' save and just what that felt like in terms of the resilience and adversity of this team. Serena said at the end that, sh- that she thought that would be a turning point, And I think we did too. But it, they just didn't really have anything left at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's maybe emblematic of this England women's team that we have this slightly healthier approach to losing a major tournament match, uh, unlike the men's game where we forensically pick at it and think we perhaps deserved a little bit more. It sounds like we're all quite happy or content, certainly, with the idea that Spain were the better team. Tell me just very briefly before I let you go uh, and get packing. Serena Wiegmann, we talked yesterday, uh, you ringing into the editing desk and telling me that she 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 hadn't quite answered about her future. And I did the classic thing like all editors do and go, Serena Wiegmann's going to quit. Oh, my God, that's a great story. And you said, calm down, Tom. That's not quite what I was saying. Tell us a bit about that press conference, how she seemed. And thinking about the future, do you see, you know, are we now preparing for the kind of final two years of Serena Wiegmann's reign? She was obviously very dejected because not only was it a a World Cup defeat with England, she she also lost uh, in 2019 with the Netherlands. So I think it's very difficult when you've achieved almost everything else in football, but then that that prize continues to elude you. Um, And you could kind of see that because she's not a particularly emotional character usually. She's quite reserved with the press, but but you could really feel that disappointment last night. I think in terms of her future, she's contracted with England until the end of the European Championships in 2025. I think uh, a mark of Eggman is is her integrity, and I think she intends to to see that contract out. I think last night she was asked about the prospect of of wanting to lead England at another World Cup, having seen how close they they got last night, and that is the question that she avoided. <laughs> she actually said four years is is quite a long time. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's sort of understood that following the Euros, the FA were quite keen to tie down. Beagman to a longer contract is something she sort of stalled at. She she already felt as though getting to that Euros in 2025 was quite a significant time period. Obviously, she doesn't live in England. She continues to live in the Netherlands. So she's coming back and forth. So I think it'll be very interesting to see if she does commit longer. But I think for me personally, I can see I really wanting to lead Team GB at the Olympics. And I've actually written something on, on this today. Um, I think she'll want to do that 
And I think she'll, she'll probably, by that point, give the Euros another shot with England. But I wouldn't be surprised if she departed after that. Yes, we'll wait and see what the future holds for Serena Wiegmann and England. But the future for you, Molly Hudson, involves a long plane ride home. Hopefully some good films on option uh, and a nice rest and a holiday. Well done, Molly. Coverage has been brilliant. We'll speak to you very soon. Thank you. See you soon. So Molly Hudson there talking about England's defeat in that World Cup final. Obviously, we did so many brilliant, brilliant pieces before this game. Alison Rudd, you can see me looking at you. You know where I'm going with this. But there was one in particular that stood out, not necessarily for the words, but for the pictures. <laughs> How have these never come to light before? The piece I'm talking about is Alison's column in the Sunday Times this week, uh, which was headlined, Lioness's success has taken the game to a whole new level. But as well as being a piece discussing the women's game, it also talks about your time playing for Leighton Orient in the 1990s and contains some quite frankly, remarkable pictures of you in action. <laughs> the hair is stunning. Uh, the kit is brilliant. Some old school black boots. I think, are they Nike? Maybe a little bit faded. What was the sponsorship deal for that big, big <laughs> ah, box? Yes. Are we talking? Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. We sat here all this time referring to Gregor's playing days and little bit, little bit, <laughs> uh, we had a former Leighton Orient star in our midst. Well, I don't bang on about it like Gregor. Does, <laughs> do I? No, it was actually sparked by genuine envy because Alessia Russo's goal celebration is the same as mine used to be. <laughs> and yet she was sweeping towards packed stadiums in the Antipodes and I would be sweeping towards someone's boyfriend or girlfriend with a dog, you know, and that would be it for most of my playing career. Um, those pictures were taken for the one time I played at Brisbane Road which sort of sums up what it used to be like. They allowed the ladies onto the pitch once, you know, and you know, Leighton Orient used to have the best um, groundsman. He used to win all the awards, Leighton Orient groundsman, and they didn't really want women on it, but they let us on it for one, one game. And so they sent uh, a Times photographer to take those pictures, which is why they're better than your average snaps that would be taken by a fan. But it did make me think, and I try not to, but I learned to play as an adult mm. and it made me think what what if I'd been training as a three-year-old what if what if what if what if football had been different back then and there'd been a pathway back then because most of my career was spent playing friendlies and the odd cup game yeah. and mostly actually most of my career was spent playing with men in the park yeah. because I, at that point there was no I didn't know any women who even liked football let alone yeah, yeah. played it it was just so different the contrast between watching the World Cup, which was held beautifully, I thought, in Australia and New Zealand, and what my life as an someone I just adored football so much, and it was the love of football that got me got me into teams because no one wanted me to play, mm. no bloke wanted me on the team, but I ended up doing everything to make sure they couldn't do that. So I would be the manager, I'd provide the kit, I'd bring the ball, I'd bring the pump, I'd find the opposition, I'd find subs at late notice. I became sort of famous in the. Regent's Park area as big, for being the person to get in touch with if you wanted a, you a, a game. game of football. And that was the way I made myself indispensable. And, and it meant that the more misogynistic blokes, none of them really complained because they could see all the other things I brought to it. You're a vital and, machine. And I would try hard. You know, I would try hard. I worked hard. I usually played up front and just... If I couldn't do much else, I would just make sure I made the defenders have an annoying time. Very, very briefly, to your point, Gregor, you've got a young daughter. Alison's point about what if, what if, what if. As a former player, 
Are you are you going to be? Go on. There you go. There's a ball. Shows what I've already do. done. It. See if you've got a left foot as good as mine. I've already. She has left foot. <laughs> I swear. I'm almost certain of that, and I'm, I'm like disproportionately proud of it as well. But um, absolutely, and I like I spoke about this last summer when we covered the Euros. Um, Susie, my partner as well, played for Derby County Ladies when she was growing up, mm. and you know there's a bit more of a pathway than 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 Alison's time, but it still kind of got to a certain point, and that was that was it. There wasn't really much else to do, so um, yeah, look, it's just taken huge strides year after year now, and and there is a pathway now, and there's you know a kind of groundswell of of sort of joy about that as well. Mm. Excited for the day we transfer Susie in for Gregor sometime in <laughs> January. I think Tom Roddy, you can cover that big transfer breaking story when it happens. <laughs> Obviously, loads and loads of articles to read about England and Spain and England's World Cup journey. And I would strongly recommend you checking out Molly's uh, very personal and very moving essay about the women's game and what it means to her, which is on the Times website now. But we have to move on. And just as I did in the editing chair yesterday, after that final subsided and we got the website up to date, I looked at the clock and said, right, what time does the Villa game kick off? <laughs> so we're going to start with that. Their 4-0 win against Everton. We've got lots, of to, lots to discuss about the weekend's action. So we're going to keep it quite brief on all of these. Gregor, I wanted to ask you about Everton. They're a team that you've talked about a lot. Sean Dyche saying after the game, I could have taken all my whole team off at half time. I wanted to ask you about that comment in relation to these players because to me, they ain't, they ain't a group brimming with confidence anyway before the start of the season. They've lost this game. Fairly shambolic performance, has to be said. What will that do to them, having the manager come out and say that after the game at this stage in the season? I don't know. You just get the feeling that with Sean Dyche, it's nothing that he wouldn't be saying to them in private as well. So I think you know, that's important. It's not just taking them out in public. I'm pretty sure he'll be doing it behind closed doors as well. Um, but you're right, it was shambolic. Shambolic defensively, that's the, that's the really worrying thing because that's the thing that he has worked so hard to try and to try and change. Uh, that uncharacteristic error by Ashley Young for, mm. I think, the fourth. It's kind of two, two throw-ins, two throw-ins that they just dealt with shambolically, um, one of which was their own, <laughs> uh, led to goals. And you have to you have to give Villa credit too, because after their opening day defeat, I think Bill, Bill Eggers little nugget in the, in the paper this morning about them being the second team to have you know, lost by at least four goals in the first week and won by at least four goals mm. in the second week. And, the, you know, huge positives going forward for them. Musa Diaby looks like a real threat. Yeah. Leon Bailey, Watkins, huge, lots, lots of pace. And I, uh, I returned to form for Super John McGinn as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Some, a player we, we, that we discussed on the podcast previously. Tom, you've, you've dealt with Villa and the kind of hierarchy there and in terms of the growth that they're aspiring to. This is the kind of performance they've wanted to see, isn't it? 4-0 at home. Villa Park, rocking, exciting, exciting players, you know, looking like they're going to create chances at all points. Yeah, at this at this stage, you're trying to work out second game of the season whether Everton are in a disaster zone or Villa are really starting to soar. Mm. And I think the the substitutions actually reflect kind of where those two clubs are at. One in Villa where they're able to bring on Coutinho, Tielemans and Cameron Archer and the, the new guy, Duran up front. Um, another brilliant name for headlines. <laughs> uh, and um, Everton who, who came undone. Um, and th- what their most impressive substitute was Arn Outdown Juma who didn't even want to be there <laughs> last year and ends up there. 
So the, the level in, of investment they're, they're able to do, again, sort of the parallels between the two clubs. You've got Everton who had these huge exits over the summer, totally predictable exits because the hierarchy of the club was not was not helpful in any way and needed that significant change. And on the other side with Villa, they were they've built and forged this team over a long a long period now that's that's in place with Unai Emery and Monchi, the sporting director. And that's a huge coup to get him. And this is the type of performance and the type of result you actually expected from Villa this season. Yeah. And I mean in terms of those clubs growing, it leads us on to the next game that we want to talk about from Sunday. Villa a team seem to be heading in the right direction. West Ham against Chelsea, West Ham winning 3-1. I'm not too sure, too sure where these two teams are going, whether they're heading in the right direction or the wrong direction. Tom, we were talking yesterday. You were there at the game. We were speaking, uh, as we always do, after the press conferences. And I believe I'm getting this right. Mauricio Pochettino said, he, despite a 3-1 defeat, he would be more worried if they're playing badly and winning. So my question to you is, are they playing well and losing? <laughs> uh, sort of, yeah. I think the Liverpool game on the opening day of the season, they were very good. Uh, for probably half an hour of the first half, they were excellent at West Ham. I think the Enzo Fernandez penalty miss totally shifted momentum in the game. And I, I, I agreed with most of what Mauricio Pochettino said after the game. It was only when he said he saw positive, very positive things from Moises Caicedo mm-hmm. today. I wasn't quite convinced about. Um, well, he was wearing a Chelsea shirt. That was hugely <laughs> encouraging start, yeah. given the summer of speculation. The fact it didn't have a sponsor on it wasn't very encouraging. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, the big one of the big problems for Chelsea actually, and uh, this is one of the things I was going to speak to you about yesterday, potentially, Tom, about a piece to write. We ended up going with Caicedo's debut and, and Sterling's, Sterling sort of showing him the way of being able to recover from a difficult start at Chelsea. But one of the things that has has struck me is the where goals are going to come for Chelsea because they've signed Nicholas Jackson this summer and he is a very enjoyable player to watch and he's he's a he will be popular among fans or spectators in general because he works so hard and gets in really good positions but I don't see him scoring 20 goals a season. He, he didn't at Villarreal last year. I think it was eight in the end in La Liga. But he might be, he's like the kind of play you, you goal scorers play off. And there was, when when Chelsea were at their best under Thomas Tuchel, actually a lot of the goals were coming from Ben Chilwell down the left and Reese James down the right. And they may have to do that again. Chilwell was getting in the box quite a lot yesterday. He had a chance, didn't he, when it was a bit of a goal mouth scramble. And I was yeah. thinking, this should be kind of a winger. This should be almost, you know, if it was your Mudrich maybe or someone else, which is another interesting topic mm-hmm. that we were talking about. Alison, do you agree with Tom's assessment of Chelsea then at this stage in the season? Very early days, of course. We keep making this joke on the podcast in <laughs> making big grand sweeping statements after only two games. That's a job. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So Roy Keane. <laughs> so go for it. Make the big sweeping stuff. Oh, I think I Chelsea. think Tom's being generous, actually. I think he's fallen in love with Pochettino. He sees him, you know, two or three times a week and uh, he's under the spell. <laughs> but I thought they were a bit naive. They were playing West Ham 
at West Ham. Traditionally, West Ham lift their... I've been in that stadium when they're un, almost unrecognisable, West Ham, when they play Chelsea. They mm. really lift their game. They've just signed James Ward-Prowse, who is your set-piece man extraordinaire. What's he going to do? He's going to deliver a wonderful corner and he's going to deliver a wonderful pass. And then they weren't prepared for marking in such situations. They, it was as though they, I don't know, they ignored the opposition and do that at your peril. I felt the corner they conceded was something they could have worked on and they didn't. I don't know who was, who was, was marking. Gallagher. Gallagher shouldn't yeah. have been up against anyone. Well, what was it? Was it a zonal marking problem? Anyway, it, it looked messy. It looked not well thought through. Like no one would bother to say, oh, West Ham are built for set pieces. They've now got James Ward-Prowse who can deliver them. Look at his stats. His corners are going to be very difficult to um, defend. So why don't we practice that? They didn't look like they had. And I just felt there's a seduction element also in the fact that Pochettino knows he's at Chelsea now, which in some respects is a step up from his Spurs days. You can't operate like that. You have to treat West Ham with respect in those situations. And I just don't think they did. And the Caicedo, the introduction of Caicedo, again, probably naive. He's not, he's missed pre-season. He's probably been distracted by all the stuff about where he would end up going. We know he's a fantastic player, but we only know he's a fantastic player when he's in a settled place in a club like Brighton. We don't know what sort of player he's going to be like when he's had all the headlines. And he, the weight of that price tag, for goodness sake, that's enormous. And then he comes out onto the pitch. I don't know what mental state he's going to be in, but clearly it wasn't a good one. Shouldn't his manager have known that? Mm. The, thing, the thing that I'd be most worried about if I was a Chelsea fan is that they had, you know, they had 76% of the ball and they landed two fewer shots on target than West Ham. Yeah. And even when in that spell in the first half, when they they were lo looking quite good, they're moving the ball around well. Did they really carve West Ham open? It looked like a training ground drill. West Ham were defending the box. Yeah. And then, like Chelsea weren't really getting in behind them. They were sometimes with the byline, kind of trying to pick out a cross. Didn't ever find a man. Um, and then when West Ham went down to ten men, they just sort of mm. sort of entrenched that that feel that same sort of pattern of the game and. They didn't look like scoring. That's the same thing. Do you think, they look, worse? Do you think they look worse when they were down to 10 men? Chelsea looked worse when West Ham were well, down to 10 Well, as I say, it's like West Ham were sort of even more content to do that and go and play on the break. Tom and I spoke about this before. And it's just extraordinary. I still find myself watching Chelsea and thinking they spent a billion pounds nearly on this team and they look hugely inexperienced and they don't look like they can score any goals. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, it is It is remarkable. Tom, just back to you. On just that. to defend my newly beloved... Um, <laughs> injuries. His uh, injuries, yeah, absolutely. Injuries. I, that, but I don't think that's... Well, no, maybe it should be an issue with going forward. You've got Fafana, Rhys James is a massive element of that team, even more going forward than than defensively. And But the one scathing thing he comment he made was on that goal was on the James Ward Prowse delivery because he said we we prepared for that. Well, they didn't. Uh, yeah. It, well, yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it look, didn't like look like it. it. No, it didn't look like it at all. Um, but that's yeah. That's my point, Gregor. I just don't see where I don't see goals coming from the the ordinary point where the problem for Chelsea from years and years and years since Diego Costa has been having a goal scorer up front spent nearly a billion pounds on players and they haven't got a goal scorer up front. They've got one 
who is at the training ground waiting for a move and doesn't have a number and cost 100 million pounds two years ago and he's not being integrated back into that side and i think that is largely his desire he doesn't want to be involved remember lukaku doesn't want to be involved mm. but you do wonder whether you get to a stage of the transfer window passes and he's still there whether they attempt to do that I'll come back to Chelsea and particularly Caicedo in a second. But, Gregor, we were talking with Martin Samuel and Johnny Northcroft on Thursday's show about West Ham and about David Moyes and about his persona in press conferences that you've been in. I thought it was particularly telling, given that all we've outlined, Alison, you saying that this was classic West Ham. And it was. I mean, I can't believe we all didn't have a fiver on it at some point. Because, <laughs> you know, a bit downtrodden, they play Chelsea at home. is a nailed-on win, isn't it? And as you said, Gregor, they almost looked better when they had 10 men. He was beaming in the post-match press conferences, certainly ones on Sky anyway. For him, how, how does he take this then? Because we can almost say these things about playing Chelsea. How do you take that game into, you know, when you're playing Fulham or Sheffield United or other, or other games when perhaps they struggle? Because you can't, you can't play a Chelsea at home every week. No. <laughs> I just don't think you can extrapolate too much from it either because there were, at that period in the first half, I remember watching this thinking, this could get edgy. Mm. Like the West Ham were so deep, they were so content just to let Chelsea have the ball. The fans were starting to get a bit frustrated. It was like this, you know, this could turn. It could, and when the penalty arrived, you thought this, you know, this could turn. So it's it's all about getting the results. If you do that and they get the results, particularly against big teams in marquee games like this, then the fans are going to be content. But there's it's still the same, you know, kind of clash about, you know, conflict about wanting to be something a little bit more mm. and more progressive and mm. I don't think anything that David Moyes does except win games can change that yeah back to Caicedo then ever had a debut as bad as his coming on we made a joke all about all it in the game but all of them <laughs> yeah most of the your team would say all of them I wouldn't be too worried about that I'd be more worried about Mudrick mm. just looks like someone who has zero confidence and they spent nearly 90 what was it 90 million pounds yeah yeah um, All Chelsea do is go around hijacking know, deals and then their players aren't very good. Yeah. I mean, but it does. you do wonder, you talk about that price tag with Caicedo where it's, it's got to be in your mind. Surely, surely. Or is it, uh, am I, you know... I mean, I've never been bought for 115. Were you not? Okay, 115 you quid. But, no, I don't, I don't think so, no. I think he's, he was not prepared. Mm. And, you know, he said a disrupted summer. He probably, you know, he's the eager, eager new guy saying, oh, I'm ready, boss, I can come on and play. And they're desperate to integrate him too because they're putting Conor Gallagher in a position that's not really his. And they want to see that sort of access of Caicedo and Fernandes and they want to see it quickly. Yeah. So, you know, both parties, okay, we'll get you on the pitch. It came too soon. I think in a few weeks' time, we'll see, we'll see the real Caicedo. Yeah. Tom, you mentioned your piece earlier. You've written about Caicedo, but also about Raheem Sterling on the Times website now talking about these players coming in and their big contracts and you and I were joking maybe that's why they give them such big contracts because it takes them a year to get settled in and start performing but I wanted to ask you about a player who's left Chelsea Ruben Loftus-Cheek you interviewed him uh, last week um, and you can still read that interview on the Times website now tell us a bit more about that interview what he was like because you you know talked about what an interesting talker he was and he spoke quite passionately about his time at Chelsea didn't he? Yeah he did and I interviewed him a couple of years ago when he was on loan at Fulham and he's a really engaging bright young guy with original answers so so it's it's an enjoyable conversation with him and he's obviously been deeply affected by his time at Chelsea because he's now 27, going to turn 28 this season. And he's never 
really had a run of games because of his his injuries and because of finally leaving Chelsea he was liberated to be able to talk freely about that experience and he said every year I was debating whether to leave or stay and he didn't want to go into great detail on this but there was clearly issues when he was much younger at the club where he wanted to go out on loan and get that experience mm. and w- and wasn't allowed the opportunity to. And I think part of that came from a cultural element at Chelsea back then, because you've got to remember the context back then was that Ruben Loftus-Cheek was the only player coming through the academy at Chelsea, the only, the only one. And there was big pressure on those on the club to, to do that because of the amount of money they'd spent. Um, he has struggled with injuries throughout his whole career. I mean, when you when you look at the numbers, he's, he's played 100, I think it was 103 games in all competitions for Chelsea in, well, seven years at the club. He was on loan at Palace and on loan at Fulham. And he felt in those two loans that he was, that was where he improved the most, mm-hmm. which is, Pretty damning on the experiences at Chelsea. We also played in a World Cup. You know, he, did. he was kind of the twelfth man almost mm. at that twenty eighteen World yeah. Cup, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And and I remember Gareth Southgate around maybe it was around that time, maybe even before, saying that he felt that Loftus Cheek was inhibited by other players at Chelsea, more senior players. Um and you just it, it's actually a bit of a pity when you look at his career because there's so much potential there. I mean, I think he's such a unique player because he's got this huge size and athleticism, but he's so graceful on the ball and we haven't been able to see it. There's been tiny little glimpses over the years. He, Whether he's right on this or not, whether it's him trying to... Uh, whether it's him trying to give himself the psychological edge going to Milan but he's got this this idea in his mind that even though he is coming up to those sort of peak years of his career because he's not played as many games as a 28 year old usually would he thinks of himself still as like a teenager or a 21 year old going to Milan so the the best years should be ahead of him whether that turns out to be true who knows but he he had a great start um, or had a great start there in scoring a hat trick in one of the friendlies, but doesn't really tell you tell you much. But I do feel he'll have a. He, he's he described himself as a caged animal, and the, the reason for that was because he was playing at right wing back. He was playing as a number six, and he wants to be yeah. wants to be a number eight. Um, and he feels like now he's had over the last two years he's had the fitness, but not the opportunity. Yeah, it's a really interesting interview. You can read it at the Times website now, as well as Alison's piece about her time at Leighton Orient. Well worth checking out for those pictures alone, I can promise you. If you go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game, you'll find our latest subscription offer. Stick with us. We've still got loads to discuss about Saturday's action. To Tottenham then for their entertaining 2-0 win against Manchester United. Now, Alison, I use the word entertaining because to quote you, Back at you. These words were yours, I believe. It felt at times as if both managers were more worried by the prospect of a draw than a defeat. There was recklessness galore, but also vision, pace and fine tackles under pressure. Sounds like a thriller. 
And it's all down to Ange Postacoglu, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I, I've seen Spurs, both Spurs opening games now. And at Brentford, it was, there was so much intensity and uh, a change in approach that at times it was, the chaos was ugly. At home, in their big stadium, it worked. And it was at times rather beautiful. I can't tell you, I've, I've been to a lot of matches at the new stadium. This was the one with the best atmosphere by a huge factor. Mm. And that was ex accentuated by the fact when I walked up um, the high road, the atmosphere outside the stadium was one of, oh, this is our first game without Kane at home. And it sort of felt a bit low key. And I wasn't expecting it to be the way it was inside the stadium that everyone decided, okay, we, we were a bit sad before, let's give our new manager a chance, let's see what he can do. And he took the acclaim of the crowd before kickoff and then he delivered. He delivered mm -hmm. the stuff they'd been waiting for. It couldn't have been more, I think I said something like they'd been curled into a horrible, tightly knit ball of pragmatism for the years under previous pragmatic managers. Well remembered, that was the other quote I was going to read. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt like they, they'd been, un they were now unravelling to what Spurs fans traditionally want to see, which is excitement. I mean, proper go for it, unfettered, just go for it, have mm. fun. And United got sucked into it, so they contributed to it. So it was a very, it was so end to end, it was, it was silly because mm. I was doing what they call a runner because it was a 5.30 kickoff where you have to write quite a lot before while the game's going on. Yeah. And it was like, when am I going to type? Because I can't, I, can't, <laughs> well, I can't not watch this. It was astonishing. I mean, it's going to be a very interesting season. Postacoglu afterwards, he's the, he, he doesn't sound like a manager that delivers that. Mm. He was quite low key. Very calm. He seems quite restrained in press conferences. I'm, I'm teetering on the brink of doing an Australian accent here, but I'm not <laughs> going to. I'm not going to. Hey, come on. My Scottish is pretty good when I He's got a soft Australian yeah. accent and a soft delivery. But he's got quite a dark sense of humour at times. Seen yeah, a few he, clips he does, of him on social media making the odd questions. Yeah. Absolutely. But he doesn't, he doesn't talk like a man who's just delivered the football you've seen. Whereas someone like Jose Mourinho, who talks like he's delivered something astonishing, when in fact, when you analyse it, it was really boring. If you, if you, if you were to compare the two managers and say, which is the one that delivers the exciting football? You, yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't say it was Ange, would you? No, but he is the one that does it. But it's never, you get the impression it's not quite good enough. Not quite good enough yet. And it, it's just I, not someone that's prone to hyperbole. He's like, there was a question about his reception from the fans. And I think his answer was like, you know, like it's, it's lovely, but I'm, I'm also not kind of sold by it. It's, you know, they're they're ready for something like this and, and I've not really done anything yet. You know, he's, he's thoughtful as well. Yeah. It's all kind of, yeah, he's, he plays everything down apart from the grand vision, which he's absolutely, completely clear about mm -hmm. and he, the, the, the way the football's going to be. I, I was saying to Alison earlier, I'm going to Bournemouth next Saturday. So lunchtime kickoff, there's a train strike. Susie's got the car. She's going up north for her mum's birthday. I've no idea how I'm going to get there yet, but I'm excited. I'm going. <laughs> I'm excited. And how often could you say that about Spurs in recent years? Yeah. Like, and she needs a lift, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keen to watch Spurs in the flesh for the first time. Yeah. The it's a fascinating subject you've almost stumbled upon here with Postacoglu and the comparisons with Mourinho and Conte. Because I was speaking, as I often do, to my colleagues on the editing desk, and one of them is a Tottenham fan. I reference him on the podcast all the time in the hope that he's going to listen. Are you going to name him? No, no absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, 
But he was saying exactly what you said, Alison, and that this is what we want to see. This is what we've wanted to see for such a long time. And we talked so much about the excitement of Conte and Mourinho and winning trophies. And I wonder whether actually Tottenham need an Ange Postacoglu or, to go back many years, a Mauricio Pochettino, where the personality and the style of football is about, you know, low, low hype, but really good delivery rather than the kind of chest beating, I'm going to win some trophies, we need to spend loads of money, and actually it might be a bit boring. Is that not the balance that they seem to have Well, this, is, this is the miracle that's un- unfolding. I, I, As I say, it is going to be an astonishingly interesting s- story. I get the impression if they keep doing this, playing the way they're playing, the fans won't be quite so obsessed about silverware. Yeah. As long as they... I mean, he's got... Uh, Postacobby's record goes back to his Japanese days. He's, he's unbeaten at home something like 49 matches or something. I, I, can, I can imagine them remaining unbeaten at home throughout the rest of the season if they maintain... Do you remember when they built the stadium, they're supposed to have copied the Dortmund wall mm. and they were supposed to... Part of the plan was that they were going to intimidate the hell out of opponents. And it never happened. It just never happened. It was a disappointment. I never felt there was a wall there. It was there on Sunday. It was there. It, it existed. You actually saw the potential of this stadium to be incredibly intimidating. And every and there were lots of them, every foray, every positive pass, every dribble out of defence, every one ball, every everything was, let's go for it. And the crowd responded every single time to the point that I was worried about them if they didn't score. Mm-hmm. And the outpouring of relief, it felt like a cup final. Right. If it can be like that every week, they... They might, they might not win the league, but they might, they might get to the Champions League. I had a feeling after after Ange's Celtic days that this would happen. I didn't think it would happen this quickly. Right. Like, I don't think even you know Spurs fans would have thought that. He, he's he's actually known for slow starts. Mm. I think he won one of his first seven league games at Celtic or something like that. Lots of draws. Right. Um, and then he won the league. I'm not saying they're going to win the league, but. The transformation has been quicker than anyone. It's for two games in, yeah. but it has happened. Don't quicker. say it. Don't they, say no, it. They, what they're seeing before their eyes is so starkly contrasting to what they have endured for the last few years that they are ready to get on board with it. That's the most impressive thing that it's only two games yeah. in, though, because uh, not going back to Chelsea, but the comparison between the the defence of the performance at the London Stadium was about how their own. it's only two games in, you can't have expected them to have transformed things overnight, and yet Postacoglu has. And I thought that watching Eve Basuma sums up that, that contrast between the Conte and Mourinho era to this one, because he was, he was so enjoyable to watch the way he plays in midfield, to, to have that he was liberated to have that license from the deep-lying midfield position to play with such confidence, to play so boldly. I, I, I would have, I would have gone back to the days of player cam just to focus in on him. Yeah, he I said, I said after last last week that was the best I'd ever seen him play, and then he played better. Yeah. Week. And a lot of the conversation after this has been about com- contrasting. Maybe I'm. St- I'm getting your question here. No, no, no. Mount, Mount and Madison. Were <laughs> just like keep two, going. Just keep going. I don't need to ask. They're like, they're like you know, two players who've made a move, England midfielders who've made moves this summer. Mm. Madison looks like he's flourishing in this team. Mount is like, not sure what his, what his role is going to be in this team yet. But that's all to do with the system around them. Mm. It's like, and it's easy to get on board when you're, when you're playing, ex, you know, expressive, enjoyable attacking football like this. 
but a lot of it's to do because we simply can go forward because Pedro Porro is tucking in from right back. Yeah. Udogi's playing like an inside left winger. So Song can play wide. It's like, you know, the, the kind of, sometimes they will be left wide open. We saw that at Brentford too, but they're all, they all look like they're invested with it. And it's like, it's about the, the sort of interchanging and then Manchester United, that, that doesn't feel like they've got that at all yet. And, and they're, they're not, they're not dogged down by the fact Kane's gone because all of the even like Basuma, it's like a new signing. Madison, they're they're all free of this um, of this loss. There's not a grievance among them because they never had him. Postecoglou never really had Kane. Basuma never well, Basuma in the team never really had him. Same with Adogi and um, and Madison as well. They don't. Uh, funnily enough, I not going to the game, so not preparing in the same way you would have done, Alison, and and walking up the. Uh, towards the stadium and listening to fans talking about Kane, I was watching the match and thinking, God, Man United could have done with Kane. <laughs> rather than Tom. Yeah. yeah. Well, you say that, Tom. That leads me on to my next question because, as well as clearly, as much as Alison's giving you some jip for falling for Mirror Show Postino, it's clear these two have fallen for Ange big time. So <laughs> hope, hopefully you can keep it up. But Should we get some framed photos? Yeah, exactly. Time? Manager of the week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Alison, I want to just briefly come back to Manchester United because we did talk about them at length on Thursday's show. But you mentioned Manchester United falling for this almost, if you like, and contributing to this in your match report, this entertaining game. But it didn't help them, did it? They did, it was almost like they didn't need to. They didn't didn't serve them well to play that way. Were, were they really poor, or were Tottenham really good? I didn't think Man United were that poor in the first half. It's, it's easy because they lost to just say the whole thing was a disaster. They did match United. Actually, in that first half, there wasn't much to choose between them at all. But you could see it was because it wasn't their system and it was Spurs' system that they slowly couldn't keep pace with it and it, it started to look fractured. So Ten Hag brought on Ericsson and, and to do, by doing that, he was basically saying, let's calm it down, let's try and be more intellectual about this, let's try and impose our own. Let's just let's just take a breath here because we are we are struggling to keep pace with this ridiculous end-to-end football. But it it did it did just didn't work because they haven't got they don't seem to have I don't know what's going on at Man United. They don't seem to ever have the correct personnel on the pitch. Mm-hmm. I don't no one seems to quite work properly. Bruno Fernandez, I, I thought he had an amazing first season at United. And now all he seems to do is is get annoyed with things. Mm-hmm. Is he flashes of genius, but he spends far too much energy getting cross with himself, his teammates, the referee, and he's not involved enough like he used to be. Mr. Sitter as well. Well, he, well that was spectacularly. That yeah. was <laughs> hell of a miss. That was the nicest move of the match from United's point of view. It was a s- superb timed run. So it was so well timed that he had nobody around him. And it was like he was um, near the gymnasts get twisties and when they're in the air and they don't know they don't know what's left, right, up or down. <laughs> it was like he had so much time the ball was in the air that he just didn't know where he was anymore. He had that panic attack and it, it was just an awful attempt. Ten Hag gives the impression of being in control, the first manager to have control since Ferguson, the first manager to have um, that 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 huge personality who stands for no nonsense who wants to really drill the team. And yet, when they go out and play, it was a bit reminiscent of last season when they went to Brentford and they were completely hammered 4-0. And you thought, ah, well, Ten Hag got his work cut out, 
but he'll, you know, he'll if they stick with him, give him a chance, he'll sort out the problems. And and yet, why are we back at that stage yet again? Mm. They were outplayed by Wolves, really lucky to win that game. Ultimately outplayed by Spurs, who are missing a striker. Richarlison played better this week than last week, but he's not the answer. Why are they starting again, Manchester United? Why are they still? Why did they still have all these problems? And why has he sound, signed Mason Mount and not given him a position where he can flourish? He was largely anonymous and frustrated. Gregor, you're both nodding and shaking your head at the same time during Alison talking there. Bruno Fernandes, Mason Mount, some themes to pick up. I don't like the kind of narrative that Mason Mount is a problem already for Man United. I feel like it's it's sort of systemic. It's not. Casemiro has been, you know, again, there's people as well saying he looks like he's been exposed. There's too much space. It's about closing space. It's about Spurs are closing space in sort of imaginative ways now. As I say, they have fullbacks who are stepping into midfield. Um, they've given given players license, but there's always cover. It's like, and it's always about backing up attacks. It's like. You know, I know it's a cliche, but it's, it's about pressing high. It's about, you know, if, as soon as the ball's lost at high up of the pitch, Spurs' Spurs' entire team are in, the, are in the opposition's half. Man United don't seem to have the confidence to do that. Um, so it's about it's about filling spaces more than the sort of personnel. And you know, Mount is the most probably the most kind of multifunctional midfielder that Man United have. Like, so there's no reason why he shouldn't fit into this team. Um, it's 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 more about how they close the space and how they, you know, having the confidence to, to play higher up the pitch, having fullbacks who, who can maybe do a little bit more for mm. the team, i.e. sort of defensively higher up the pitch and on the ball. And I don't think they have that. And that's a big theme. I've mentioned it every week now. It's a big theme of the Premier League now. Fullbacks have to do a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of jobs, mm. both defensively, but not just in terms of against wingers 1v1, playing higher up the pitch and almost acting like midfielders. I was worried by what Ten Hag said after the game because... He mentioned, he used the phrase about looking in the mirror and the, the I thought that it was desperate where he said about the penalty. I, I never thought that was a penalty. Mm. Oh. And the whole looking in the mirror thing, it's almost like the the November playbook of a manager, not yeah. not, <laughs> not in, a, in August, in the second week of the season. It's far too early for that. And it, it feels like a, a stage where United are finding or looking for excuses where other clubs just aren't. There would be so many situations where you look at Brentford, they haven't got Ivan Tony to play with. Uh, West Ham have got Declan Rice gone and Lucas Peketer with the awkwardness of this betting investigation, uh, alleged betting um, breaches hanging over them. Loads of... Tottenham with losing Harry Kane. So many clubs and teams have lost key individuals and are still thriving even without them. Um, And the the big problem this does as well, I feel, for United is puts a load of pressure on Rasmus Hoyland when he comes in because Mm, you are looking for... You saw Rashford's reaction when he came off the pitch. I think that's partially, partially coming off largely having to play striker. He said in the summer, I do not want to play striker. He wants to play on that left-hand side. It, there's so much pressure on Hoyland, a young guy with a big price tag on his head, that when he finally does come into the team, the expectation is going to be so high. Yeah. I mean, the questions and problems keep mounting for Manchester United, but 
their uh, ruthless neighbours, Manchester City, questions posed at them, are Newcastle going to beat you? No, they're not. They're going to just swap them aside with a fairly composed 1-0 win. I'm going to deal with this match in a kind of quick-fire fashion, similar to Villa and Everton. So it's one question on each. Alison, Tony Cascarino described Newcastle as a little bit timid, a little bit maybe too nice a way of playing to go to the champions. He wanted to see them go at these teams now. They've put themselves on a pedestal. They've said, we're, we're as good as the big boys. They need to be a bit braver. Would you agree with that? I thought I thought they were aggressive, Newcastle. Thought they were annoying with their tackling. And... They've been annoying for a while. Though. <laughs> yes, they, they, they were just and aggressive. They were just as annoying and aggressive as normal. Just that City are able to rise above that. Eddie Howe sometimes acts like what happens has nothing to do with him. <laughs> you know, we, we have everything in place. Not quite sure why he didn't execute it today, um, but it comes from the manager, doesn't it? And maybe you know he's not. For all the wonders he's done, coaching-wise, at Newcastle, he, he, his CV isn't one of managing at the elite level and knowing how to progress amongst the elite level. And I wonder if maybe it sort of subconsciously emanates from him to the players because, yes, they were aggressive and didn't look scared, but neither did they look like they could believe that this was an early title contender sort of match, which, you know... I'm, I mean, there were people actually saying, ooh, you know, maybe this will show us that Newcastle could win the league. I mean, what nonsense. They are, they are challenging the league now. Like, they, they did it for the majority of last season. They didn't challenge it. for the league title. No, they're challenging, no, they're challenging the, elite. the elite. Yeah. And they, they've done it in, in games against them as well. They've, ne they've never been, like, turned over yeah. by anyone. And that is, you know, they, they have a kind of blueprint. And obviously it changes a bit when they're playing against a team, uh, a team lower down the table. But it's been really in your face, obdurate, and being a threat on the break. And they weren't as threatening on the break as they have been in, in other games, but like it wasn't an easy game for, for City. They, 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 you know, narrow margins, and they're always such a threat from set pieces in Newcastle too. I, you know, so, City, so the, was, City deserved to win. It wasn't missed opportunities, so, though, wasn't it? City tired after the Super Cup. City, a city acted as though they were playing against an elite team and relieved to get through. I just thought well, they Newcastle, were. You saw Newcastle did not take advantage of that. You saw Guardiola after the game. Yeah, he was kind of on a pitch, kind of gene up the crowd and saying mm. this was a big win because, you know, I think they have, they're, one of the players was saying after they have a saying that like, what we do now will matter at the end of the season because, mm. you know, although it's, it seems so distant and they've just had all these achievements, they kind of, despite the tiredness, despite what they've gone through midweek, they knew this would be a big game with, you know, that would matter at the end of the season. And we saw them being delighted to beat Newcastle 1-0. Yeah. One of the other questions we'll pose to Manchester City is how they cope without Kevin De Bruyne. Phil Foden putting in a performance. Paul Hurst has written in the Times this morning like this could be his chance. Foden been in and out of the team and in and out of the picture a little bit at City. Tom, do you feel this is his moment to step up? I mean, I'm really excited about the possibility, not of not seeing Kevin De Bruyne, but of what it might mean for seeing a more of Phil Foden. No, absolutely. I don't, I don't think he quite grabs a game in the same way De Bruyne does, but there was, in the way he played that game, it just reflected how he, that's the position he wants to play. And I think last year you saw him always tending to play out wide on the right or out wide on the left. And he wants the freedom in that pocket in front of, between the lines. And you just saw how effective it is. I mean, I, I can't think of many players who can control a ball and caress a ball in the way he does. It, got, it, it made me 
really excited for the Euros next year, already at this stage, thinking of the prospect of him playing in front of Jude Bellingham and Declan Rice, just the, the balance that that could give Gareth Southgate. We always team. do this though with Foden. We always go, yeah, this, this Foden has got to play for England. Yeah. And like, it's, it's true, but we don't see it on a, like in a consistent enough basis. Good. Or we have, but then there have been lulls or he's got, he's got you know, a huge competition, but now he's got a window of opportunity. Well, this is what I mean. I was going to ask that question. You talk about that consistency and that's this, not criticism of Pep Guardiola, but the way he manages his city side for a player like Foden who perhaps needs that run, he doesn't always get it, does he? Because he might play twice and play brilliantly and then he'll be rested for a Champions League game and you know comes off the bench for the game at Wolves on Saturday. Do you feel like he's a player who actually needs that run that he might get now? Like every every player does, and like I've no idea what it would be like to play in in a team with, you know, an embarrassment of riches like that, where you're competing just to get a starting place, and any sort of drop in form can you know jeopardise that. But if he if he kind of sees that De Bruyne is out out for four months, I think it is that they've lost two big players who would you know have played in front of him certainly some of last season. He sees that this is his time to step up. He's he's the main man, and mm. you know saw something. Tom just referenced Ivan Tony, so so Brentford film at the weekend that with someone who's a guy, you know, a bit of a talisman gone, uh, Wissa was saying, "This is my time." That's yeah. what he actually said. Yeah, I'm here. This is my time. Exactly. Well, that mean brings us perfectly, perfectly on. It's almost like we planned this podcast. Well, yeah, it? something. It's, it's beautiful little one-twos that we keep playing this season so far, Gregor. We want to talk about Brentford and Brighton. Because we talked about in our preview show, can they do it again? Almost everyone's two favourite other teams, if you like. Uh, Brentford missing Ivan Tony, of course, until January. He has spoken today, uh, which you can read on the Times website, about some of his difficulties with gambling uh, throughout his life and his hopes and dreams for coming back into the England setup and beyond. Um, Gregor, you mentioned some of those players that they are stepping into his shoes, if you like. You were at Brentford's win at Fulham uh, and you started your piece with the line, how do you deal with the loss of a talismanic striker? So tell us, how well, yeah, do you? <laughs> well, that's the question that Fulham are now asking because of, of course, the yeah. departure of Alexander Mitrovic to, to Saudi Arabia, joining up with Neymar. Um, <laughs> didn't think that would ever happen, did you? Uh, but that was like the theme of the day because you know everyone's question about Brentford was how are they going to replace Ivan Tony? You can't replace him. Fulham can't replace Mitrovic. What they're doing is doing something a little bit different, and it's you know whistle through the middle. Uh, this they changed the change system a bit as well. They went four three three. They have been playing three five two. Are they still going long? They're still playing. They're still direct. They're still con- yeah direct. Say. Yeah, Sorry. they're still not con- long. They're still no content to let the opposition have the ball, particularly away from home, and they play forward quickly. The difference is they don't have the aerial threat. It's yeah. not like up on Ivan Tony's head for knockdowns in behind. It's there were some in, you know, into Wissa's feet, and Buemo coming in off the off the right, obviously left footed. Uh, Kevin Shaddy still not really, he played on the left, not really sort of had lift off in his his Brentford career yet. But these two guys have stepped up like massively. I think in the last seven games they've they've both scored. They've scored in every single game that Tony's mm. missed. That's that's three from the ban to this season. And another couple, I think it was Liverpool and Forest last season. Every single time he's been missing, those both of them have scored. Mm. So you know that's <laughs> that's one one way of of uh, you know of filling the hole that he leaves. Fulham, on the other hand, uh, you know they turned to Carlos Vinicius, Raúl Jiménez, who's not scored in twenty five Premier League appearances now. 
it looks like a bit much much sterner challenge for them. Do, is there a sense of a bit of a reset with Fulham? They're kind of needing, you know, did so well last season. Bit of, you know, difficult off-season, if you like, because Marco Silva, of course, was linked with move away as well as yeah. losing Mitrovic. Did it feel a little bit like they need they need a bit of time to regroup almost? Yeah, although he said, you know, we need four or five players and we have 15, win- 15 days of the transfer window left. So I think he looks like, you know, we need to reinvest this money quickly. And it just does feel like a different sort of different mood music playing at Craven Cottage this season because of he obviously looked quite peeved about the way that Mitrovic is he said he's forced he kept saying he forced his way to get this move. Quite basically. peeved. Yeah. <laughs> quite peeved, yeah. He was fifty yeah. million though, that's they hung out for the a good price. Not if they get relegated. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I know they need to they need to dip in the transfer market because the other thing is they are so built around playing, playing around the target man. Brentford were too, but they they did they do have players who are like forwards who can play anywhere across the lane. Thomas Frank's always referencing uh, Keane Lewis Potter as well, and Shadi thinks there's more to come from them. So they've got four players who can play anywhere across the front line, and they do feel like they have a bit more f- sort of flexibility. Fulham need to rip up and start again. It feels like. Yeah. Well, speaking of good transfer investments and players that just keep coming in, Brighton. We're going to end with them. I mean, they're just too much of a good story, aren't they, really? Like, that's the nature of journalists. We like to pick at things, good debates. Right, and just keep being wonderful and brilliant and winning games and playing lovely football and selling their stars for 100 million quid and then bringing in all this talent that they seem to have amassed in waiting in the reserves. Alison, again, we talked about them in uh, pre-season and you said, oh, the fans are going to have a wonderful season. And so it seemed. Yeah, although, and you do think how long can this ha- go on for? Because oh no, don't don't, no, don't no, burst no, the bubble. No, 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 I'm not going to burst the bubble. But Mitoma scored, you know, early shout for a long list for goal of the season, and then afterwards he spoke to Japanese reporters and indicated he might be leaving too. That he was, you know, he didn't. He's not going anywhere. Uh, well, it makes you think every time. Every time there's something beautiful happens at Brighton, then. There'll be yet more speculation. I, so far, they've handled it brilliantly, and they do have their stalwarts. And um, I, I love Solly March. I think you know he's, he should play for England, shouldn't he? Because he's sunny, like his name is a bit. <laughs> but he, he, it's just like it's like they can't escape this tag of being a, a production line of talent that will inevitably move on. And you sort of hope that because they've got European football, um, possibly guaranteed top top six place, maybe that players will stop thinking that this is only a pit stop for them, and that they they should commit because it's um, it's a great place to live. It's, it's a great, well-run club. The manager looks hilariously good fun actually <laughs> so just go I just I just feel like it just made me feel a little bit sad that you had this beautiful goal scored by Matoma who was a breakout star last season for them but people couldn't quite believe how amazing he was such pace and able to score as well and, and dovetailed with, with his teammates so beautifully and you thought oh great he stayed and yet the conversation is still about how long he will stay for and I, I that's don't. That's our fault, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's think, our fault. I think they, well, these I were think Japanese journalists asking him. They're still not, journalists, not, not you and me. They're still journalists. I, I think they're, they embrace. I think even the Zerbies embraced that kind of, as you say, production line. But how long can you embrace that for? Because you need some solidity and sense of. But he's joking about it. There was a line in his press conference where he said, uh, 
you know, we're talking about a replacement for Caicedo and he's saying, if I tell you a name, then he's, he's, his value will leave, mm-hmm. but he'll be brilliant. Yeah. That's what he said. So like, he has confidence in the way the club operates. And Cecil as well was, was brilliant. It's, it's kind of a little outside of the boot yeah. assist for, for March. Um, but Alisson does make a good point though, when you think about say Leicester, for example, who in a different in a different way and slightly not as well managed, but they had the rise up. We had to talk about them. Are they the seventh club? Are they going to be in that top six contention for a long time? I guess that, to answer your question, perhaps Alison, is Brighton's choice now. Where, how high do you go and then how high do you want to stay? Are you trying to break into that big six or are you just kind of going to stay happy pushing towards a European spot in the Cups? You know, Gregor, you're, you're, grimace, you're grimacing. <laughs> I don't think people think like that. I think that Fans we, don't, but clubs, surely no, club I don't think they do. think. I think they think they'll, they're aiming as high as they can go. And that's like a process. It's always, everything's process driven now, particularly with Brighton. They want, you know, they, they are the best at replacing and, and getting the best price for what, what leaves, the players that leave, and replacing them with someone that a lot of us don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and they turn out to be brilliant. So I think they, they'll just got to have, as Tom's reference with, with uh, what's going on at Chelsea in the last year or so, they've had half their kind of staff taken, taken away as well. Mm. And they're still doing this. But it's and the, the, the one last thing about, you know, it's, some people might roll their eyes at this, but since the Zerbi's first game in charge, no side of averaged a non-penalty XG per game higher than Brighton. So not only is like, is it about the players? It's now about the way they play. Mm. It's about the manager mm. and the system. And they are just, they create as many chances, good goal scoring chances as any team in the Premier League. Which is exactly what I was going to say, Gregor, that it's about the, it's about the coach and the culture because back in, uh, I remember watching Solly March playing under Oscar Garcia as a, as a left back, really struggling mm. left back. And now you've got him saying that Deserby's challenged him to score 15 goals in the yeah. Premier League this season. And you wouldn't put him, put it past him doing that. The idea last week when Man City went in for Paqueta at West Ham felt like an absolute disaster for West Ham because they're losing Declan Rice and Paqueta in one transfer window, the, the heart of their team. Brighton had that happen this year with uh, McAllister and Caicedo going. And yet Enciso, who last season broke onto the scene scoring these incredible long-range goals, is turns creator. And Deserby finds these ways of of doing exactly what you expect a coach to do, developing players and progressing players and, and making them fit into a system. And obviously they were smart in getting Mahoud to Hood. Mm. Um, well, I saw a, there was a, 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 a Times uh, subscriber uh, wrote that they were they came up with a song that was Mahoud to Hood to the theme of the Pink Panther, which I thought was absolutely Mahoud brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. We'll take that, we'll take that. Happy times at Brighton and happy times on the game podcast. I think that felt like a jolly episode. Tom, Roddy, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robson, thank you very much for joining me. If you enjoyed this podcast, maybe if it made you happy, make sure you subscribe uh, and you can subscribe to read all the brilliant content from these guys at Times Online now. Stay with us. We'll be back on Thursday with all the latest then. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.